This is an ABC podcast. In the early 1990s, I spent two months travelling around Ireland. In Galway, I stayed in a little B&B that was next to a quay that was known in Galway as the Long Walk because this is where the ships that were filled with Irish emigrants to America and to Australia would leave while their loved ones who remained would pace alongside the ship waving goodbye. Ireland in the early 90s seemed to me at the time like it was sort of sleepwalking through life. But there were powerful forces stirring under the surface that were to transform Ireland. It would give up its dream of becoming the model Catholic nation, a beacon to the world, and become a modern secular nation. I'm very pleased to say Fintan O'Toole is here. Fintan's an author and a journalist. He writes for the Irish Times, for the New York Review of Books, The New Yorker, The Guardian. He writes on Ireland, Britain and the United States. Fintan O'Toole lived through this remarkable transformation. He grew up in an island which had made an art of both knowing and not knowing, of turning a blind eye to things best not mentioned. Fintan has written a wonderful book. It's called We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Ireland Since 1958. Hello, Fintan. Welcome to you. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to be here. It's a wonderful title, We Don't Know Ourselves. Where do you get that from? Well, it's a great title, but it doesn't work <laughs> for most people outside of Ireland. So in Ireland, if you get a new lawnmower, uh, somebody says to you, how's your new lawnmower? You say, we don't know ourselves since we got the new lawnmower. It's just fantastic. You know? well, is that transformational? Is it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's changed like, everything. Know, and so uh, I did want that sort of likely comic feel to it of, you know, Ireland has become a marvel to itself and also the literal meaning of we still don't know who we are, you know, or, well, it, set, it sets up this this theme, as you mentioned, which really is the capacity of the society to to know things and not know them. I mean, I, I always felt um, people might remember Donald Rumsfeld's going on about the known knowns and the unknown knowns, you know, when they were talking about invading Iraq. And I, I said he forgot the Irish one, which was the unknown known, <laughs> you know, the thing we know and don't know at the same time. Uh, and, of course, all societies have, have these capacities, you know, to, to, to look away. In from fact, every single know. one of them does, I think, don't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But I, I do think it's a particular strength and weakness of Irishness. It's a culture which was formed around the ways in which it organised knowledge and separates it, you know, to the point almost of kind of cognitive dissonance, you know, of having one part of the collective consciousness which is actually very well aware of what's going on and another one which just completely ignores it and pretends it's not happening. Your book is very clever in the way you set out to open a, a window on small episodes in your own life as someone born in Ireland in 58 and how that might reflect on a much larger change that was going on in society. In your book, you have this lovely sentence you write, for all my life, until about 1980, I had been told to think of myself as the end of something and the beginning of something else. What, what is that end and what is that beginning? So, as you said, I was born in 1958 and apart altogether from my own birth, it was a quite a momentous year Lord. in Ireland <laughs> because... Uh, it was the year, happens to coincide with the year of really uh, this, the beginning of this profound revolution, social, cultural revolution. It's really the low point of independent Ireland. Ireland at that stage, it still wasn't much more than 35 years old as a state, you know. And it was getting close to being a failed state. 
So you think about all the blood and all the passion that had gone into, you know, the creation of an independent Ireland. The massive sacrifice. A yeah. massive sacrifice of, yes. you know, generations. And, and yet by 1958, the terrible thing that was happening was most young people were getting the hell out of the place. And they were going to the old colonial oppressor, right? They were going across the sea to, to work in England. Very often in England, Irish people, with people with an Irish accent, would be treated as a dumb paddy and be treated with contempt. Yeah. How bad do things have to be in Ireland for make, to make people think that they can still nonetheless have a better life in England? Exactly, exactly, you know. And it was humiliating. There, there was an element of national humiliation involved in this, you know. And really the question was, was it worth it? Was it worth all the anguish to set up our own state if our young people are just voting with their feet and saying, actually, you know what, however difficult it is to be an Irish person in England, it's a much better life. And it was a better life because of free education, capacity to, to go to college. Remember, in Ireland at the time I was born, you did not have free second level education. Oh, really? You paid to go to high school? You had to pay to go to high school. They were all owned, dominated by the, by the Catholic Church and, and they were all fee paying. You had a very sclerotic, self-satisfied, post-revolutionary elite. The, the prime minister was the guy who was the last surviving commandant from the 1916 rising in Dublin against the British. still there. This is Eamon de Valera. Eamon de Valera is still there. But you did have a young civil servant. So a very, very talented guy. And he was just so talented, he'd kind of risen to the top. But he was still in his late 30s. I called T.K. Whittaker. He was the Secretary of Department of Finance, so he was the most senior civil servant. And he just said, this can't go on. There's got to be nobody left. You know, this really isn't working. And he published a document saying, basically, if we don't really change radically, then the thing isn't viable anymore. But Ireland might just peter out. Yeah. That it's just becoming demographically unsustainable. And were there, was there signs of it petering out? Like, were there like sort of ghost towns, ghost villages? And you know, like one of the images that's still kind of haunting, because you'll still come across them if you're, you know, walking in a remote area in Ireland. You, certainly 20, 30 years ago, you would have seen this quite a lot, where you'd pass an old cottage and you'd look in the window and you'd see the teapot and the plates still on the table, you know, just abandoned. Like the Marie Celeste, was it? A, 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 like, a completely. Yeah. Like people had just walked out. They just had enough and gone. Gone. You know, and the young people, may, maybe, I don't know what happened, the, the mother died or something, the old mother and the young people just said, we're leaving now, you know. And so, yes, absolutely, it was very tangible and it, it was demographic. So, I mean, a simple way to think of it is, this is Europe in the 1950s, repopulating after the disasters of the Second World War. Everywhere the population is growing. There were two countries in Europe that lost population in that decade. One was East Germany, <laughs> for fairly obvious reasons, <laughs> before they build a wall. And the other was Ireland. And they couldn't build a wall, you know. I mean, they would have built a wall, by the way, you know, if they, if they could. Uh, but they couldn't keep the right. people in. So the, the demoralising effect of that was, was, was so strong that actually there was an audience for what this civil servant was saying. And he published a, a document with the most boring title he could possibly think of and the most boring look. It was called The Grey Book, uh, locally, because it was a grey cover and the title was Economic Development. You know, and it just sounded like, this is really unthreatening, you know, whatever. But what he was saying was, in order to develop the economy, we've got to bring in foreign capital. And this may, may, may seem very obvious now, you know, it's everybody wants to bring in foreign investments. But, of course, this whole place had been built on an ideal of self-sufficiency. Ourselves alone. Ourselves alone, mm. Sinn Féin, you know. And, 
And protectionism was pretty standard sort of economic policy in the 1920s when the Irish state was founded. The problem was protectionism only really works if you've got a growing market. You know, a domestic market is <laughs> you can build up and you can serve your own market. But if your market's literally leaving on the long walk, you know, if they're going to American Britain, protectionism just, just can't work. So what was happening was it was just kind of dwindling and dwindling. And it, it was an agricultural economy. I quote in the book, and I think people find it hard to believe, you know, but it, it just it gives you a little glimpse of how primitive the economy was, you know, which is, I, I found a table which had the top five Irish exports and the top five Irish imports. This is from the mid-1950s. And the top five exports, I noticed, had racehorses and the top five imports had racehorses. I said, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, why were we importing and exporting racehorses? The economy was so small that racehorses going to races in England were counted as exports. And coming back, they were counted as imports. And in both cases, they were among the top five. You know? So like, it's hard to get your head around just, just how closed and, and dwindling this, this economy was. You know? And young people were really very bitter because they were just sick of it. You know? and so I'm a kid in the 1960s. And what we were being told was, you won't have to emigrate. Uh, this was so important psychologically. You, you know. won't have to emigrate. You won't have to emigrate. And why, and why not? No, because, I mean, if you look, I suppose, in broad terms, Irish labour was going to foreign capital. You know, we were going to America and Australia and Britain. And now that foreign capital was going to come to where the labour was, which meant you could stay there. And this was remarkably successful. So know. this was a radical economic proposition, but Huge. dressed up in very anodyne, sort of bland, yeah. economist speak. Yeah, in 58, that, that year, one of my favourite novels was published, which was uh, uh, The Leopard by uh, Giuseppe de Lampedusa, the oh. great Italian novel, you know, and it has the great line in it where it's set during the Risorgimento and all the kind of revolution in Italy and the the young guy is going off to join the revolutionaries and his his uncle, who's the... Uh, aristocrat the is, yes, is yes. shocked, you know, mm. and he says, why are you, why are you doing this? You know, this is terrible. And the, and the young guy says, what you don't understand is that in order for things to stay the same, things must change. And this was the paradox of the whole Irish project, right? You have to remember, this was a conservative, top-down revolution, which was that in order to keep Catholic nationalist Ireland, keep it the way we want it to be, we have to radically change everything. And it's a sort of fascinating experiment in a way in can you do that? You know, is it possible, in fact, to unleash these forces of economic change and still have in, in many ways the same kind of conservative religious culture that you started out with? And they nearly pulled it off. It was a very close run thing right up until the end of the 20th century because Ireland was still was a very conservative Catholic culture. And you could sort of feel they got pretty close to managing this almost impossible thing where you go from being an agricultural society to being industrial and post-industrial indeed. Education becomes available to people. When I was born, Ireland was the least educated country in Europe and now it's the most educated country in Europe. I mean, so you change everything, but could you then retain this... The soul. The soul, the soul as they of would have seen Ireland, it. As they would yes. have seen it back Where then. Gonna, you yeah. said you grew up in a working class part of yeah. Dublin. Your dad was a bus conductor. Yeah. And your mum was, was she a cleaner? She was that? an office cleaner. An yeah. office cleaner. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. I think we'd say now that as a couple, they were aspirational. When they moved into their housing projects, how did that change their lives compared to their, their grandparents, for example? 
you know, when I eventually got to university, my my middle class uh, friends were horrified. I remember somebody drove me home one, one time, you know, and I could just see her looking around at the house and say, they're all the same. I mean, she's just never seen anything like this, you know. It's just a kind of common... How you know, could they not be aware estate? of these housing uh, uh, estates? Could, you, could were, you easily avoid them then? You could, you? completely. So right. they were geographically, you know, on the outskirts of the city. Oh, to not contaminate. And so, yeah, yeah precisely. Right. Uh, but, and they, mm. in a way, they actually made for... They, they made the old city look more respectable because actually old Dublin was full of very poor people. You know, it was notoriously in lots of slums and everything else. So it was a kind of slum clearance where they moved people like my parents. They, they would both have grown up in the inner city. I mean, right in... James Joyce's Dublin, if you think about it that way, you know. And they were moved out to this place. They were happy with us, you know, because, I mean, they had, they had running water, <laughs> clean water, indoor toilets, you know. Uh, so my, I, I remember visiting my mother's family in, in rural Ireland, you know, not, not too far from Dublin. I mean, 30, 40 miles, you know, outside. Uh, but I, I remember as a child, I was only two or three, but I remember thinking of, you know, carrying the water in buckets, you know, and it, it, it came back to me, that memory, funny enough, years and years later, I was in Kenya and watching women, you know, having to do this thing of hauling water. But, you know, in the 1960s, the, the Irish girls, you know, you know, young girls who were talking about getting married, they had this sardonic phrase, you know, the, the, the church's thing was you promised to love, honour and obey. And in Ireland, in rural Ireland, girls still had love, honour and carry water. You know, if you, got, you would end up your life because you had kids. You know, you, having to go a mile or two miles to the pump and carry the water. So that was in the wedding walk. vow, love, honour and carry. No, it wasn't formally, right. but that was the... It was a saying. It was right. the saying, that, right. but, but it was a kind of common saying among among. Yes, among now girls, I think that, that that's come into the language, oh, I won't carry water for that person. I won't, or I, you know, yeah, I'm yeah, to carry water. Yeah, that's and right. That's, that's, that's the right. origin. I think origin the origin of it. You know, but, but so, so it, it was very poor, very underdeveloped. And so actually... We felt, so we were looked down on as kind of, you know, working class wild kids out there in these housing estates. But actually, we thought of ourselves as being really quite, uh, quite upper class because we had mm. an indoor <laughs> toilet. You know? We had running water. Um, I mean, they were tiny, display, you know, and of course, they were, they were crazy because they were for Catholic families. Contraception was banned, you have to remember. So, so it's hard now to remember just, just how much Catholic teaching was enforced as law. There's a, a moment you write about, around about the same time your parents got married, there was a, a headline that blared in the newspaper, front page headline in the Irish Times, the headline blared, <laughs> slight increase in marriage rates. <laughs> this was a front page headline. Yeah, yeah, Take yeah. Like, slight like, increase. Planes yeah. crashed into the Twin Towers, slight increase in marriage rates. <laughs> yeah. there, there was the demographic disaster of yeah. mass emigration. Yeah. What, what, did, what, was, what was going on here with this, this, this concern with the marriage rate? So it is one of the great ironies, right? So, so you have this sort of super Catholic country and Catholicism is obsessed with the family and, you know, big families and all that sort of stuff and marriage. Uh, and in fact, Ireland had the lowest recorded marriage rate in the developed world in, in the 1950s. Why? Because young people were leaving, of course, yeah. in, in such numbers. But also because they were too successful at scaring people off sex. <laughs> you know, the obsessional puritanism wow. was such that Actually, you know... So courting was very difficult. Courting was quite difficult, particularly in rural Ireland where everybody was watching you, you know. I think one of the reasons young people got out as well was just this stultifying sense that you were being watched all the time. And when I say scared, I mean scared. And, and, and people might have heard of these things, but, but you know, particularly for young... Because it's always women, of course, who, who have to pay the price, you know. Men don't. But for, for young women, 
there were institutions called Magdalene Laundries, which we're still dealing with now, this, this legacy, you know. Quite literally, if you were a young girl, you could be more or less kidnapped. If you were judged to be in moral danger or posing moral danger to others, you could be kidnapped, taken into one of these institutions, incarcerated there, made to do slave labour. These were laundries. They were commercial laundries run by nuns. And so these, these young girls, young women, very often, sometimes they were there for a few years. In some cases, they never got out. What you know, behaviour would constitute becoming an immoral woman? Would it be becoming pregnant or, or not even that? Not even that. So, so it, it could mean becoming pregnant. It could just mean being very poor, you know, from a, from a family where your parents couldn't, couldn't afford to take care of you. But, of course, also it meant that girls who were being abused themselves. I mean, this is the grotesque nature of it, that actually if, if you were being abused and you maybe complained about it, you were obviously causing trouble. You know, it was your fault. So, you know, when I say people were scared, I mean, they were really scared. And this is this great tragedy of Irish Catholicism, you know, that Irish people were very genuinely, very devoted to the church and to their religion, you know, and it was a huge part of Irish identity for, for obvious historical reasons, you know, of a form of resistance, really. Britishness and Protestantism went together, you know, and so the insistence that you must be Protestant one of the great exceptions in Europe to this idea that, you know, whatever the ruler says you are, you must be, was Ireland, you know, where, where the majority of the population, in spite of actually really kind of terrible um, penalties that they suffered for remaining Catholic, did so. It was a really very profound expression of their identity. So Catholicism is very bound up in national Nationalism, identity. yeah. I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Catholicism actually stated explicitly in the Constitution of Ireland that it was, what, the, the established religion of Ireland or something uh, like yeah, that? Yeah, so he didn't, didn't quite go to say established religion. The church did want that, but, but de Valera, whom we mentioned, kind of slightly pulled back and said, oh, hold on a minute. But uh, it was, there was a, the state recognising the special position of the Catholic Church in the Constitution. The special position? Special position. But, but more importantly, actually, this was practical. So it, it was, the church was allowed to control the entire education system, most of the healthcare system, and every single law that had to do with reproduction or women's rights uh, or sexuality simply reflected Catholic teaching. So you couldn't buy condoms, for example, banned, or any other form of so-called artificial contraception was the phrase used. <laughs> uh, but divorce was banned in the Constitution. So it wasn't just that you couldn't get a divorce. There was a constitutional prohibition on, on the dissolution of marriage. And if you wanted to end your marriage, was there any way to end a, an unhappy marriage? Go to England. England. <laughs> Go to England. Yeah. You know, and of course, often what happened was that uh, a man in an, in an unhappy marriage would, would, would go off to England and leave the just wife. Just abandon the family. Leave the wife. So the church is a, you know, a huge institution in the society from the 5th century onwards. And the state arrives in 1922, you know. So it could dictate... But also because it was this fusion of national identity and religious identity, it screws up both of them, actually. It screws up your nationality because it makes it sectarian, but it also screws up your spiritual and religious life because it, it makes it political. You know, it, it, it just becomes a for, another form of power. And that's the story, how this kind of form of power worked, and then also why it disappears so radically and so dramatically in, in recent years. One of the major figures in Ireland while you were growing up was the Archbishop of Dublin, McQuaid. Archbishop McQuaid, the most powerful figure in the church in Ireland at the time. You write that he kept a telescope 
and a magnifying glass in his office. Why did he keep a telescope and a magnifying glass in his, in his palace? Well, the, the, the belief was that his telescope was trained on... There was a little island. He was on the coast, you know. He had his own place on the coast and he had a kind of tower and he would look out on this island where courting couples used to go, you know. <laughs> Presumably shout at them from the tower. Like, yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. A bit more distance uh, between but, you the know, two it, places. It was, it was kind of like psychology. He was watching everything. Right. But the, the, we, we definitely know, and this is provable because it's, it's in the archives, right, which is the magnifying glass was for examining ads for women's underwear in the newspapers. <laughs> Because there's, really? <laughs> there's a letter, I, mean, I swear to God, there's a letter in the archives where he wrote to the editor of the Irish Press, which is one of the main papers, saying, you know, I have examined this ad for women's underwear. In, and uh, uh, if you look at it under a magnifying glass, you can see the mons veneris. <laughs> the pubic mound of the yeah, yeah, yeah. under the underwear. Yeah. Right. And uh, this must stop, basically. And, you know, but of course it would have been stopped. So this is the whole thing. I mean, that you know, that this guy's power was such... So the weekend I was born in Dublin was the Dublin Theatre Festival. Famous theatre city, like one of the great kind of theatre capitals of the world for a long time. Theatre Festival was a huge kind of showcase. The Dublin Theatre Festival was cancelled on the week that I was born, the weekend I was born, because the Archbishop McQuaid had indicated his displeasure at the fact that there were works by James Joyce and Sean O'Casey uh, and Samuel Beckett going to be in the, in the theatre festival. Particularly Joyce. I think he was particularly annoyed about Joyce. There was an adaptation of a little bit of, of Joyce's Ulysses. And he didn't, he didn't make a speech. He didn't make, give a sermon. He didn't make, you know, do anything in public at all. He, he just indicated the fact that he was very unhappy about this. And they just cancelled the festival. You, you know, uh, uh, the, the equivalent of ABC, the state radio station... They had a, a requests program. You know, this used to be all, 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 you know radio stations, and, and somebody asked for the, the the Cole Porter song, "Always True to You, Darling in My Fashion." You know, and and they played it. And the Archbishop was on the phone, you know, saying, "True to You in My Fashion." Uh, you know, what is that? This is really outrageous. And ever afterwards, when they were asked to play that song, they played the instrumental version. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's so just... So he's like the unblinking eye of Sauron, was he? Uh, completely, tower? you know, right, right. watching everything. <laughs> he had networks of spies everywhere, you know, in the parishes. Mm. He knew everything that was going on. So I, I served mass for this guy. And this was... Our, our parish priest in this housing estate died and he'd been a friend of the archbishop. So the archbishop decided he would come to serve the solemn requiem Latin mass. You know, the candles, the black vestments, the, you know, it was a real show. But I'm... I'm walking up the road t towards the church early in the morning to, to, you know, get ready for serving the mass. And there's this huge limousine, you know, <laughs> you've never seen anything like it. And it's parked outside the parish priest's house and I'm walking up towards it. And, but I can't, I can't quite figure out what's going on. There's, there's a man in a uniform kneeling on the footpath and he's in a kind of grey uniform. And as I get closer, I see these two little feet sticking out the side of the limo and I realise it's the chauffeur is polishing the archbishop's shoes with the archbishop in them. <laughs> He's, he has his feet sticking out the side of his car and his chauffeur uh, is kneeling on the footpath, you know, just polishing up his shoes. And even as a little kid, you know, I mean, even as a seven-year-old, I thought, I don't think that's what Jesus meant by, you know, re religion. This just doesn't seem right. 
but yet he was this very charismatic. He was a, he was a little man, you know, but he had beautiful eyes, and he you know he was. I think he was very interested in young boys, you know, because <laughs> afterwards we did the mass, and it was a really fantastic. And then he came back, and he he was talking to us, you know, and he you kissed his ring and all this, but he he was very engaged, you know, and 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 I just felt so in love with him, you know, in a way because it was like this was the power, you know, it really was like a a royal visit. And only subsequently did I realise that in the weeks before that, so in, in our parish was this big children's hospital and he had appointed a, the chaplain to the children's hospital. And the chaplain children's hospital had been taking photographs of, of uh, naked children, sent them off to London to be developed. The uh, shop or whatever were developing them saw these were very alarmed, got in touch with Scotland Yard, the police in London, sent the photographs to them. What did Scotland Yard immediately got onto the commissioner of the police in Dublin? What did he do? He went to Archbishop McQuaid directly, and McQuaid said, "Oh, you know, he's just curious. He's he's curious about. He's he's a bit naive. He doesn't know about this stuff. You know, he's just. I'm I'm going to get a good Catholic doctor to talk to him. You know, so so at the same time as you've got this kind of royal figure almost coming to your place, you know, what we didn't know was that he was, he was leaving." this paedophile in the children's hospital next door, you know. And then when that guy left, he appointed another paedophile, you know. And so, I, I, you know, I mean, this was so open. Yeah, this way. must have been seen. Yeah. And it must have been un- so everybody, understood, though. I mean, uh, we, 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 yeah. So, so this known goes, and not known. This is the known and not known. This is one big, big part of it is that everybody could see this and know it. You know, these are intimate places. I mean, everybody knows what's going on. But nobody could articulate it. Because if you did, you might pick apart the whole thread of modern Ireland. If exactly, you did. exactly. And your own faith as well. I mean, remember people genuinely believed. But also, say I went to my parents and I said, you know, something happened. And what, what were they going to do? They go to the police, the police go to the archbishop. It, it was just a closed system. And this is very, very toxic. You know, it, it sort of teaches people to, to compartmentalise, you know, to not see what you're seeing. Broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. There's a wonderful phrase you use in your book called... The Connie Dodger. What, what is, tell me what the Connie Dodger refers to, please. It's one of my favourite things. You know, um, if you don't believe that change is possible, you don't really confront it, right, for, for all the reasons we've been talking about. But you, you sort of get around it. You know, people learn how to have these moments of defiance. And so, yeah, my, my, my two favourite examples are the Connie Dodger and the cycle regulator. So the Connie Dodger was... So in uh, traditional Catholicism, the, the season of Lent was a season of um, prayer and fasting, and you were not supposed to eat more than one meal a day. But you were allowed to collations, they were called. It's a word I've never heard since, actually. And a collation was like a, a little a biscuit, you know, a little thing, some, you know, maybe a cup of tea and a biscuit. And in uh, Cork, the second city of, of the Republic, there, there was a particularly uh, conservative bishop. He was the kind of equivalent of John Charles McQuaid in Cork, and he was called Cornelius Lucy. 
was known as Connie. But there was a, a woman baker in Cork who produced biscuits that were enormous, <laughs> like huge disc-sized biscuits, <laughs> you know, which were called Connie Dodgers, <laughs> because you were strictly speaking, you were only having a biscuit, you know. But it was like a week's food. Um, and, and the other one, just briefly mentioned, was the was the cycle regulator, right? So, as I said, contraception was banned, but. <laughs> As the place modernizes, right? So, you know, as people like me start going to secondary school, for example, high school, you know, you need teachers. You need female teachers to teach the girls. If they're all going to have a baby every year, you know, the, no ca- teachers. the Catholic system right. is going to fall apart. Right. Similar to Catholic hospitals. I mean, if all the nurses are having babies, as they're supposed to be if they're married, the whole system will fall apart. So, of course, they all, they all have to be using contraceptives. So how do you do this, right? So international gynecological studies started to note in the 1970s there's something really weird about Irish women. The, the level of menstrual problems in Ireland <laughs> is off the charts. I mean, nobody's ever come across anything like this ever. Right, there's just like this freakish outlying uh, example I mean, of women with chaotic menstrual these, cycles. These wild Irish women can't even control right. their own cycles. They can't their own even cycles. control their menstrual, you know, menstrual cycles. And, and of course what was going on was mm. that sympathetic doctors discovered was that uh, you, you could prescribe the pill as a cycle regulator. Right, to stabilise. To stabilise the, 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 your menstrual cycle. cycle. Right. But you couldn't prescribe it as a as a contraceptive. But uh, again, this is just the way the society worked. Right? Well, there was ways I mean, around... We, and we are laughing yeah. about yeah. this, and it is very funny, and yeah. the phrase yeah. Connie Dodger yeah. is hilarious, <laughs> but it does bespeak a terrible cynicism, and which in itself is quite corrosive. Really, isn't it? It's, uh, it's deeply corrosive. No, you're absolutely right because it's all about not confronting your own reality. Yeah, you know? and in particular, shame. So, so you, you know, yeah, it is funny, but it also means that you know, as a woman, you can't even talk about your own your own life. I mean, I, I, this really hit me personally because uh, you know, I, I was always a bit of a kind of outlier, freakish, atheist journalist, you know, whatever. But my wife w- w- was teaching in a Catholic school run by nuns, and so we decided to get married in 1983. And we both agreed that we weren't going to get married in the church. So we were going to get married in the registry office. I think there were 200 people who were married in the registry office that year in, in Ireland, you know, the kind of c- civil ceremony. But uh, because we weren't getting married in the church, we had, to, we had to advertise in the newspaper that we, our intention to get married. And we thought, oh, God, if, if the nuns see this, she'll be fired. You know, she'll lose her job. Oh. Because, of course, she would not be married in the eyes of the church if we were married in a civil ceremony. And if we had children, those children were, would be illegitimate children in the eyes of the church. So we ourselves found another brilliantly hypocritical way of doing this, right? Which How? Was, How? So the secret was that one of the great sources of Irish hypocrisy is the Irish language. We're all supposed to speak Irish and love the Irish language and it's our, you know, and of course we don't. <laughs> but it meant that, that uh, in law, you could, you could put any declaration or anything in Irish. So, so we, we, we put in Devil Era's family newspaper, we put an advertisement in Irish. Fionton o Tuhil, August, Clarny Connell, a, a vague post, whatever, you know, in the Irish language. And we, we sort of bet that nobody would read it. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't. <laughs> you know, but, but, but it, it's sort of funny and it's kind of comic. And it's one of the reasons why the Irish comic tradition is so, so strong. But, but it's, it is also humiliating. It is also sort of, why, why can't I say? I mentioned in my introduction this, this idea which I got from your book. I didn't realise it, that there was this self-conscious project in Ireland yeah. to make mm-hmm. it a moral beacon 
to the world. Was this something yeah. understood by you and most most people in Ireland at the time? Yeah. I mean, of course, Richard, it was compensation, right? You know, it's compensation for being rubbish, you know, like for having a bad economy, for being poor, for the pain of mass emigration. What you do psychologically, I think, as a society is you turn that around and you say you make a virtue of your miserable necessities, right? But so, so we're poor, so, and that's the price we pay for our spiritual beauty. We're poor, which means exactly that we're, we're oh, we're not interested in material goods where we ever have interested in material goods. Of course we were. We've got a you new know. lawnmower we don't know ourselves. <laughs> exactly, you know. <laughs> so we, 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 you know, we, we reject materialist values. Emigration, well, it's not really a tragedy because we're spreading the face around the world. You know, we're bringing it to Australia. We've given you lovely things. And so absolutely when I was a kid, I mean, this, this, this stuff was, was everywhere. And it was tied in with, with our sort of exceptionalism. Somehow there was a virtue also in this suffering. You know, it, it made us, you know, the, the Catholic phrase about mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. You know, that was, that was really, and of course, we'd all get our reward in heaven. You know. What is America? to a young kid growing up in Ireland in the post-war years like yourself? So we're, we're obsessed with not being British and therefore have no problem at all being American. <laughs> you know? So that's so an acceptable way of being modern? It's the acceptable way of being modern. Right. We had no TV, by the way, until 1963, you know, so we finally get TV. And Didn't Albania get TV before Albania Ireland? got TV before Ireland did, yeah. But like the first thing I saw on, on TV, I remember like the excitement of it, turning it on, black and white TV, and there was like a... A traditional Irish storyteller telling old stories. This was so that's what sitting in a chair in a cottage, yeah, in a cottage like, telling really? old stories. Yeah, subsequently, kind of came to really admire this guy. He was a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. But they didn't have enough money to really program their TV station, and the obvious thing to do was to get programs from the BBC, which was the best broadcaster in the world. But no, they weren't going to show British programs because that would take away the whole point. But American programs, they just bought massive job lots. So. Our heads as kids were just kind of completely filled with American Westerns. And that was a lot more exciting than the little alpha telling, telling stories. And a key moment was John F. Kennedy coming in 1963. And so we've got all these old guys. We still have Devil Era. You know, we've all that stuff. And there really is a sense of stultification. And most people are fed up with it. I, I remember as a kid, like even though I was, I was only five, but it was such a stark image of this, this decrepit old man meeting this, you know, JFK is like glamour, Hollywood, sex. I mean, we wouldn't have thought of that, but of course we didn't know about his uh, his proclivities at the time. We thought he was a good Catholic boy. But he was sexy, though. He was the, sexy. Yeah, he certainly yeah. was sexy. He was young. Mm. The rhetoric, you know, the, 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 the glow of him was just incredible, you know. But he was also an Irish Catholic, you know. So it, it, it somehow seemed to reconcile this whole history of emigration. The pain of emigration was kind of worth it because we'd produced the American president, you know. And Was Ireland sort of waiting for a pat on the back for that, do you think? Oh, completely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, <laughs> what, I don't know if you do it in Australia, but one of the things we oh, always yeah. did, you see, again, a compensation thing was kind of claim everybody, you know. Mm. In um, Australia, it was like when the Beatles arrived, they got off the plane, they went into the terminal and a reporter said, what do you think of Australia? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was the, the yeah, national anxiety yeah. here. What we do mm. was genealogy. We'd, like, we'd find out, you know, right. my, my father was obsessed with boxing. He was a boxer when he was a kid and he just loved heavyweight boxing. 1972, he's, he's on his bus going up the hills really early morning outside Dublin and, and he looks out and he sees, well, he sees men running. I mean, this was like nobody ran, you know, <laughs> and they were wearing white tracksuits and they were black and they were beautiful and they were running up the, up the mountain. 
And at the head of them, he realizes Muhammad Ali, you know. Um, Muhammad Ali was in Dublin, was in, you know, <laughs> jogging next to your dad's bus. Yeah, wow. And my, my dad, they stop the bus. He says, you know, rings up, stop the bus, stop the bus." And he, and he runs out and he says, "You know, do you want a lift?" And, and Ali gets on the bus. Can you imagine the sleepy passengers? You know, and this, this man. And I, 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 it was like, good God. I, and I remember my dad coming home, and he was just glowing. You know, I mean, he he had, he had, and I mean, he used the word that was very it was almost disturbing. He said he was so beautiful. You know, a man likes talking about another a beautiful man, but when Ali. They did his genealogy and they said, no, you're really an O'Grady from County Clare. You're one of the O'Grady's. <laughs> How did he feel about that? Well, he was in, he was in, he was furious. I mean, because he had changed his name for God's sake, you know, to try to get away from the whole history of slavery and the idea that his, his ancestors might have been raped by, you know, white slave owners and all, you know. And so he was kind of furious <laughs> and it, it, it was starting to get kind of quite tetchy. Eventually he did a kind of a rant about saying, you know, no, you know, it's nothing to do with me. And then he brilliantly defused the whole thing. He said, uh, but you never know, there was a lot of sneaking around in them days. <laughs> and he knew, he, he had sensed that, just mention the possibility of sex. And that, that ended it. That ended run, it. it was over. running out of the studio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. The, the most, I think perhaps one of the darkest things, well, maybe the darkest thing in your book is the story of the so-called industrial schools yeah. in, in Ireland. You say that the kids of your area, you and others, were aware of these things called industrial schools. Yeah. What were these schools? So these were these were really horrific institutions. You know, they, they were common enough institutions in the British world, I suppose, you know, in the 19th century, you know, where they were supposed to be kind of reformatories. And they were run by uh, religious orders, particularly by the Christian brothers. So kids were incarcerated in these, in these places, maybe for like very petty crime. A, a friend of mine was sent off for stealing a bike, you know. And he was a good kid. He was a nice kid, you know. Um, but often, more often, they'd done nothing at all. I mean, it's just their parents uh, couldn't cope. Maybe the dad was an alcoholic or something, or maybe a father died. and the, well, the ten kids in the family. Kids were, yeah. you know. mm. uh, and so the kids were sent off to these institutions. And would they just be, like, plucked away or something? And, and you didn't never see them again? It or? could be years, you know. Uh, uh, and, and, of course, they were open season on these kids, you know, for, for, for every kind of physical and sexual abuse. They sound like gulags for children. They were gulags, you know. They, they were, and 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 you know, I I I've used those terms in Ireland. D did we have prison camps for children? Yes, we did. But people don't really like, still don't like you to say these things. But that's what they were. And, and here we go to knowing and not knowing again. Was yeah. it known and not known what was going on in these places? I mean, you said you had a dread of these places. Yeah. So there must have been knowledge of what exactly. was going on. There was abuse and violence. And slavery and the like. And, and it must have gone back a long way because I, uh, talking to my father, you know, uh, late in his life, his mother, uh, his father died and his mother remarried. And she mar she remarried an absolute thug. I mean, he was an awful person, you know, violent, drunk. And I, I remember saying, so why did she marry him? And he said she married him because after he, my, my father's father died, they were going to put him and his siblings in an industrial school. And the only way to keep the kids out of the industrial school, she had to marry somebody. And the only guy she could get to marry her, she was a widow with five kids, uh, oh, was, God was this horrible guy. So much of Irish history talks very heavily about a kind of a martyrdom, doesn't it? It does, this yeah. is a, this is There's all this martyrdom going on that no one's talking about. Exactly. And, you know, I never knew. I, I knew my granny, you know, and, and you know, she, she always struck me as being a bit sort of overly religious and stuff like that, you know. And, and I never really sympathised with her, you know. And it was only then I realised, oh, my God, but the sacrifice this woman made, you know, heroic sacrifice she made. But exactly, as you say, Richard, you know, not talked about, but, but known. I don't remember not knowing 
two words. One was letter frack and the other was dangan. And these are place names. Why would I know those names? They were the, the worst industrial schools. And I, I do not remember a time when I did not know those words and what they meant, which was the horrible places you would be sent if you weren't good. Now, in 1983, a referendum was put to the people of Ireland to put a constitutional ban on abortion because it was held that a child has a soul from the moment of conception. So this is all done in the name of protecting the unborn child. But this this is going on at the same time Uh, under the aegis of the same church. The same institutions, you know, uh, uh, and... The stuff that we've been discovering recently, you know, these are still very live stories in Ireland, by the way, Richard, you know, so not because it takes a generation really for, for people to face them. But, I mean, they're digging up the bodies of children from well, another set of institutions called mother and baby homes, which is where girls who were pregnant were sent away secretly, had their babies, the nuns would take care of them, and then they had to sign the babies away. They were often sold they were sold to Americans. You make a large donation to the convent and they give you a baby, basically. But the, the state is just currently commissioning a, a forensic digging up of the corpses of babies from just one of these homes. And they know from the records that there's over 800 kids buried in what was essentially a kind of sewage system. Why and, is there uh, such a high infant mortality in these mother and baby? Because they were terribly abysmally run. So so what would happen? You know, and again, you've got to try and have some sympathy for, say, the young nuns who were sentenced to run these things with no knowledge of sexuality or, or anything going on. They just didn't know what they were doing. Gastroenteritis, for example, would break out. I mean, simple diseases and, you know, mm. dozens of kids would, would, would be killed. So much change, real change came in Ireland from the booming economy, from yeah. this document you talked about, T- yeah. T.K. Whitaker exactly. wrote, exactly. which opened the Irish economy, brought down protectionist barriers. I remember once, just taking a side trip here, I, I took a trip to Europe and I stopped over in Dubai during Ramadan. And Dubai has been transformed in, what, four decades or yeah. something from a fishing village yeah. to a city with the biggest skyscraper in the world and gleaming shopping centres and the like. Rapid spectacular change and growth. And they were so careful to observe every last bit of Ramadan. It was really quite interesting to watch. It seemed like the more more spectacular or the more disruptive the economic change, it seemed more important to people, it seems, and this is generally true, for people to hang on to the old ways. You know, are we still good people? What 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 do the lessons of our grandparents tell us about what we should do and how we should act morally? Ireland, you say, was trying to do this too, trying to modernise economically but still hold to the old dream of being the moral beacon to the world. But it couldn't do it in the end, though. No, uh, but it's, it's a great point you make, you know, because it's often people don't understand. They think there's a sort of easy one-to-one relationship between social change and cultural change. No, they work against each other, I think, a lot of the uh, time. Often, exactly. Yeah. There's, there's, you, you know, you want to hold on more. And, and that definitely happens in Ireland. So we had a big reaction in Ireland in the, in the 80s, you know, with the abortion referendum. I mean, there was a referendum to try to legalise divorce in 1986, and it was defeated by two to one. Two to one. What kind of vote did the 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 the, the referendum? It was on, also on, two, on also two to one. Two to one. So so you basically had a two thirds society uh, with one third. One third was kind of liberalising, modernising, and the other, but the other two thirds were saying no, it's gone far enough. It's not going to go any further. And so you had all those tensions. And by the end of the twentieth century, right up until maybe nineteen ninety nine, well, there were key moments. Nineteen two, there was a key moment when one of the most popular bishops, Catholic bishops, um, Eamon Casey. Turned out to have a child in America and a former lover and 
that was really shocking. Um, not, and in fact, if the church had just said, look, this is what happens. And if he'd come out and he said, look, I'm really sorry this all happened, but at least I, I was kind of trying to protect the child. And, I, you know, people would have actually been fine with it because the church still had such authority. What they did was they secreted him away in the middle of the night, you know. Literally they, in the middle of the night? Yes, then? yeah. And right. they sent him off to Ecuador. <laughs> you, know, Ecuador. <laughs> you know. And and then they started saying, yeah, but we should understand, you know, that we're all human. And I think that was the point at which a lot of Catholics said, well, did you ever understand that about us? Like, you know, does that not go two ways? Um, so it was beginning really in the 90s. But the thing that broke it was was the child abuse scandals. I mean, you, you mentioned the industrial schools and a, a very good friend of mine uh, who was a magnificent journalist, she made a series of four TV films in 1999 called States of Fear, which were about the industrial school system. Uh, and they're extraordinary documents because they just let people speak. You know, and she made these very, very careful programs. The church really tried to go after her and they really would have destroyed her if they could, but they were so well made that they couldn't. And that shocked the nation. And it, it sort of forced the government very quickly issued a big public apology and a whole process of investigation started. And that was, I, I remember watching my mother, for example, who, who was, you know, very, very devout, very genuine, went to mass every day. And she just, she continued going to Mass every day and she stopped listening to a word the church had to say to her, you know. And I remember saying to her, you know, maybe you've become a Protestant. <laughs> I said, no, I haven't, no, I haven't, you know. I said, but that's, that's Protestantism, you know, where you continue your own relationship with God, but you don't listen to the intermediaries, you know. But, mm. but that, that was happening. Um, and it, it just got worse and worse. And they lied about it. They dodged it and they denied it. And, and now... You know, I suppose about 25% of people go to mass, you know, and, and, and this is, it was unthinkable. I mean, it really was unthinkable. I mean, this was, this was an extraordinarily powerful institution. Recently, I was having dinner and talking with a, a man from Ireland who migrated to Australia. And he was telling me that today, the average citizen in Ireland per capita head, I don't know how this is true or not, Fintan, per capita head, the average Irish citizen has a higher income than someone in Britain. Yeah. I wonder what that means. Emigration has stopped. People yeah. now move to Ireland. It's becoming a multicultural society. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the population's increasing. It's prosperous. It's part of the EU. It's it's pretty united. The yeah. whole issue with the North we haven't even talked about, but that's a whole other thing, I think. But it can look at Britain at the moment, which is yeah. which seems to be struggling terribly. It's the union's <laughs> under strain. It's left the EU. It's going. It's been sort of in an ongoing recession since 2010, pretty much. Yeah. I wonder how Ireland now looks to Britain, whereas in the past it might have looked with resentment and animosity. How, 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 do, how do Irish people tend to look at Britain now? Uh, to, be, to be quite uh, frank, there's an element of schadenfreude, you know, mm -hmm. um, plus an element of sympathy. I mean, we're still very close to them and we kind of, we, we do feel their pain, you know, but, but it is an incredible turnaround, right? So for 800 years, Britain was the dominant power and Ireland has to sort of deal with that. The Brexit negotiations with the European Union were extraordinary. And this is what freaked the British out, right? Because the Irish border became a big issue, which we, we won't really go into all the details of that, but it became a huge issue in, in, in the whole negotiation. Um, and the Brits always thought they could just get the Irish in a room and bully them and they'd get their way. And of course, they didn't realize, I mean, Ireland was part of a 28-member bloc. That all swung in behind Ireland. That all swung in behind yeah. Ireland. I mean, it really did, you know, it really did. The solidarity for Ireland from France and Germany and Italy and, and Poland and all the rest of it. And it really struck I woke up on that and I realized, geez, this is the first time in a thousand years that Ireland has been stronger than Britain. 
you know. Britain's become a rule taker rather than a rule yeah. maker. And, and you know, we, we were on the strong side of the table and we got our way in relation to this. We, you know, Ireland got what it wanted. But also, as you say, um, just at simple level, I, I saw the Financial Times had done some analysis recently which said that the, the poorest people in Ireland are 60% better off than the poorest people in Britain now. You don't have the levels of destitution in Ireland that you now see in, in large parts of England, you know. And I think Ireland is seeing itself more and more and more as a European country, you know. I mean, now I think, last time I looked, about 14% of our trade is with Britain, you know. 14%? 14, 14 Would have been four. like 50% about 20 years ago or yeah, something, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this process of, you know, multinational investment, it's not uncomplicated or unqualified, but it has been transformative in terms of our relationship with the world and our sense of ourselves. You're obviously very pleased about the change in Ireland. It's yeah. become a modern secular nation. Yeah. It's become much richer. It's not a failing enterprise anymore. But has something been lost in the waving goodbye to the old moral beacon to the world prototype of what Ireland was supposed to become? It's a great question, because, you know, there, there are losses. I mean, for all the toxicity of this sort of double-mindedness, I mean, double-mindedness is also very creative. You know? it's, it's maybe one of the reasons why Ireland has this kind of outsized effect in terms of theatre and literature and storytelling of, of different kinds, you know. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not myself religious, but I do miss ritual communal meaning, you know, the, the ways in which we come together. I do think there's a vacuum in finding a sort of level of human solidarity, how, how we tell stories to each other. And in societies with a certain kind of intimacy, intimacy is double-edged, right? So on the one side, it's surveillance. It's everybody knowing your business. It's the oppression. But if it switches... It's a sort of lovely thing, you know, which is actually, I care about you. You know, I, I sort of know who you are, you know. And so I wouldn't be pessimistic about the fact that we might not, not just in Ireland, but I think this is true of, we're all struggling towards this, you know, which is, which is what kind of collective language of belonging do we have? I don't think we can just ditch things like spirituality or nationality, you know. I mean, I hate xenophobic nationalism, but it doesn't mean that there's not something really valuable in our sense of national identity. You know, I mean, I'm passionately Irish. I love being Irish. You know, it's completely irrational. There's no reason I should be proud of it. You know, it's particularly given all the stuff we've been talking it's about. It's the intimacy know. with it, though, isn't it? It's the it? intimacy. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's my DNA. It's who I am. It's, you know, and, and I don't think there's ever anything wrong with that. You know, I, I think as human beings, we need to have somewhere where we feel the ground under our feet. And Ireland, I think, is fortunate to still have some ground under its feet, even though it's undergone this process of very, very radical change. I'm 65 now, you know, and I, and I, and I feel I've lived through a period when politics, you know, for, for all its awfulness, you know, and, and failures, ha has transformed my life, the lives of people around me for the better. You know? The sausage factory made an edible <laughs> sausage at last. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, it, and it is nourishing, you know. <laughs> oh, Fintan O'Toole, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. I've so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Likewise, Richard. Really lovely talking to you. Fintan O'Toole's book is called We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Ireland. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website 
abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.